Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, emotional intelligence or EI is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course, a 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity, become a stellar leader, and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.key stepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration. What do you think is most important for you to do in the world? Be an artist and be a good drawer. Do stuff that's good for the world. World, I'm gonna be in a club to help nature, and I want to do what I'm doing right now. I'm Daniel Goldman. And I'm Hanuman Goldman. You're listening to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. Today, we're talking about well-being. In a time where the world is experiencing a series of global crises, COVID-19 pandemic coupled with a devastating economic recession, racial tensions, rising mental health needs, we explore how we can foster our well-being, particularly through the lens of finding purpose in our everyday lives. You know, the importance of purpose in life was really brought home to me years ago. I was waiting for a bus on Madison Avenue in New York. It was a hot, humid day, and I was a little irritable. I step on, and the bus driver does something very surprising. He says, as though he really cared, how is your day going? And I realized there was something going on here. And I sat down and I see that this bus driver is carrying on a conversation with everyone on the bus. You're looking for suits, are you? Well, there's a great sale in this department store up here on the right. Did, did you see this amazing uh, exhibit in the museum on the left? And oh, yeah, it's Cineplex here. I know the one in Cinema 6 got great reviews. People would get off that bus and he would say as they're leaving, I hope you have a wonderful day. And he meant it. And that had a palpable effect on the people on the bus, including me. And then some years later, when this bus driver died, the New York Times ran an obituary and I found out the rest of his story. His name was Govan Brown. He was the pastor of a black church on Long Island. He saw his passengers as part of his flock. He was tending to his flock while he was driving the bus. He was the only bus driver in the history of the transit authority who they had to throw a retirement party for because he had so many fans. He got 3,000 letters of commendation, not one negative one. And this really brought home to me how 
having a purpose can matter and how you can bring it into the most mundane activities, driving a bus, encountering strangers. But he had heart. He had the sense of concern for people and genuinely wanting to connect with them. And I think it made all the difference because he was boosting people's well-being just by their being on the bus. Gosh, uh, I've heard that story uh, before. (laughs) (laughs) A lot. (laughs) I have heard this story many times, and it makes me wonder, what's the connection between purpose and well-being? There's something there, right? Maybe you've met someone who feels like they're doing exactly what they're meant to be doing. And it doesn't matter what they're doing. It could be anything, keeping a building clean or import-export or whatever. When the work has meaning and purpose, those people always have this peace to them, this feeling that they're deeply okay. How can we cultivate that well-being and find purpose in the middle of a global health crisis? Dan investigates in our first act. In today's podcast... I'm talking with a very dear old friend, Richard Davidson. Richie and I met when we were graduate students at Harvard. We were both interested at the time in meditation, but our mentors there, or certainly our professors, were not interested. They thought this was a mistake, Uh, but we pursued it anyway. You uh, have now founded something called Healthy Minds Innovation. Could you tell us about it? It's a nonprofit corporation, and it was started because of this realization that we can no longer be just scientists. We also needed to take the insights from the science and turn them into tools that can actually help nurture well-being at scale. The principal product that we've developed is a program to cultivate the four key pillars of well-being. And so that's what's part of our Healthy Minds program. And listeners uh, can um, download this. It's available free. They can go to the website, tryhealthyminds.org, and uh, learn more about it. And these are components of well-being that have been investigated scientifically. So if you put them together, is that well-being? Yes, it is. If you put these together, it is well-being. And also, it's one of the reasons why we um, uh, think it's important to recognize that well-being requires the, the nurturing of all of these capacities, not just one. So just to finish naming the four components of well-being, the first is awareness. The second we call connection. And connection includes qualities that Uh, are important for healthy social relationships, Uh, qualities like appreciation and kindness and empathy and compassion. Uh, The third component uh, or pillar of well-being is insight. And insight here we um, take to be self-knowledge and specifically knowledge of the narrative about ourselves that we all have. We all carry around this narrative. Um, We all have these beliefs about ourselves, 
And a part of well-being is deeply understanding the nature of this narrative and, and having a healthy relationship to the narrative. And we know at the extreme of the distribution, there are people who have very negative self-beliefs and who actually hold these beliefs to be a true description of who they are. And of course, that is a prescription for depression. And so part of well-being is, is really being able to nurture a healthy relationship to this narrative. Uh, and finally, the last pillar of well-being is purpose. And purpose here is about identifying our true north and particularly finding what scientists, psychologists have recently called the self-transcendent purpose. And by this, they mean a purpose that goes beyond simply themselves. It can include a purpose that in, in some way or another involves helping people, working with others, working for the greater good, and developing the awareness of this sense of purpose is really important for well-being and of particular relevance is including more and more of the activities in everyday life as being central to this purpose. And again, these are qualities of well-being, each of these, that can be nurtured through specific kinds of practices. How would you suggest that people could find equanimity during these times? I think most people would agree that the crisis that we're facing today with the pandemic is unprecedented. None of us have faced a crisis of this kind of global proportion uh, at any other point in our lives. Uh, and I think that this can be potentially used as an opportunity for recalibration. Uh, I think many of us would uh, subscribe to the view that the trajectory that we were on before the pandemic was not a particularly healthy or sustainable one. Uh, none of us can survive without activities of others. We depend on others in the food chain to enable us to eat every day. Uh, we depend on others to deliver things to our homes, which have become increasingly important during this time of the pandemic. We depend on others who are willing to sacrifice their own health to benefit others, uh, our healthcare workers and first responders. And this is an opportunity to lean into this sense of appreciation. Uh, my aspiration is that the post-pandemic world will look different than our pre-pandemic world in these ways. I hope you're right. Do you think we can have well-being all the time? I think that um, I, and I know you also have been blessed with uh, meeting some remarkable people on this planet who I do think have the unusual capacity to express well-being continuously. I don't think it happens that often, but I think that it is possible. And I think that it, it is within everyone's reach in principle, um, but it requires that we nurture it. It's a precious capacity that I think every human being shares, but it does require that we care for it uh, and cultivate it in a continuing way. Sounds to me like there's an implicit theory of change here for society at large, that uh, the more this ability to cultivate these pillars of well-being spread, 
the more you could say a society in general has well-being. Would you agree with that? I would. Uh, I would very much agree with that. Uh, and one of the ways to think about this is a public health need. Uh, and I would go even further to say that it is an urgent public health need. One of the things that I, I often remind people of is that when human beings first evolved on this planet, none of us were brushing our teeth. And yet today, virtually every person on the planet brushes their teeth. And this is something, it's not part of our genome. Um, we just do it because it is something we recognize is good for our personal physical hygiene. And what we're talking about is something important for our personal mental hygiene. And I think most people would agree that their minds are even more important than their teeth. And the data from neuroscience that's coming out suggests that even if we spent as little time as we do brushing our teeth, nurturing our mind every day, this world would really be a different place. Can you give us a quick example for awareness, insight, and purpose of the kinds of practices that can help? Sure. Uh, for awareness, it's really very, very basic, and we can use anything to support our awareness, literally. So we can become aware of our breathing. We can become aware of sound. We can be aware of a visual impression. And the quality that we're nurturing here is knowing that we're seeing or knowing that we're hearing or knowing that we're feeling something in our body. And it's this knowing quality which is at the heart of awareness. Uh, and so this is something that can be done anywhere, anytime. Insight is really about developing an understanding of the factors which are influencing our conception of ourselves, our beliefs, and our expectations. And one of the things that can really help is if you're working on some issue, either in your professional life or personal life, or if you're having some challenge, to envision what it might be like if you were to let go of all your beliefs and assumptions and expectations about that situation. Can you envision what that might be like? And this is a very simple kind of practice that can help people gain insight into forces that are operating in their mind, typically unconsciously, that influence how we see the world and how we see ourselves. And um, this can be really helpful. And in terms of purpose, here is really leaning into what might be the reason why we do things. So, you know, we can start with very conventional things like, why do you have the job that you have? Well, I need to make money to, to, to live. Okay. Well, why do you need to make money to live? And you can keep asking questions in this way. And you can ultimately, and I think for most people pretty quickly arrive at a point where you're doing this because it's gratifying. And why is it gratifying? It's gratifying because you're actually helping others. You are educating others. You may be helping to heal others. You may be helping others by repairing their plumbing in their house, whatever it might be, getting to this larger purpose that involves a kind of self-transcendent value. 
And if we can help people arrive at that place using these very simple practices, it can be enormously beneficial so they can really remind themselves that that's why they're doing it. And that can be very liberating. And one of the things that we know from scientific research is that in older folks, folks who are in starting in their 70s, having a strong sense of purpose in life is the single most important psychological predictor of longevity. And that just clearly underscores how important this is. As someone in their 70s, that's great to hear. Richard <laughs> Davidson, I want to thank you so much for spending this time sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, your expertise. Thanks again, Richie. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Purpose is something that I've been thinking about a lot because uh, I'm 45 now and I didn't really think about it much before now. Richie talks about true north and uh, as, as that sense of purpose. And it really is that it's the intention that makes a story out of all of your actions. And so it's interesting not having a cohesive uh, intention in my actions over decades. Um, there's a way that it feels a little bit floundery, you know, a little bit, uh, there's the word foundering. I, I always picture a flounder like a fish, but, <laughs> but I think the word is, is actually founder for some reason. It, it, it should founder. be flounder just for the record. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, I, there's there's a way in which those those actions aren't rooted. You know, when I look back at my life, I don't think I've had an explicit purpose that I could name. It was more implicit in decisions I made, like deciding not to stay in academics and to go into media. Hmm. Uh, I felt that um, what pulled me was the ability to basically educate a lot of people, not just a few people. And that's been, I think, a guiding, maybe true north, but I never articulated in terms of a purpose. It was more um, what had uh, compelling positivity for me, you know, what, what I was drawn toward more. And I think most people don't think about purpose you know, raising you and then you raising these great grandkids. Uh, there's certainly meaning in that for me. Uh, and um, I, I didn't ever articulate it explicitly. So I, maybe it's too much to ask people to have a purpose they can put in words, but rather reflect on what the major decisions they made in life suggest to them about what's meaningful for them. So Hanuman, one of the things that stood out to me is that Richie says these four pillars of wellness can be cultivated and, and that they must be cultivated if we're to progress as individuals and communities. I'd be curious to see a tangible example of what this looks like on the ground within an organization. How can systems, how can organizations create cultures of well-being? To investigate this question, 
First-person plural producer and correspondent Elizabeth Solomon reports in Act Two. But first, a listener comment. Hello, my name is Veronica Martinez Castro. I'm talking to you from Buenos Aires, Argentina. I enjoyed listening to your podcast very much, and I wish you take women over 50 under the spotlight of evolution of EI. Thank you very much. Veronica, we couldn't agree more. In Act 2 and 3 today, we'll share two stories you might enjoy. The first is Dot Prue. After hearing Dan's interview with Richie, one of the pieces that really stood out was the fourth pillar of well-being, purpose. I immediately thought about Dot, executive coach, leadership development expert, and a former partner at Ernst & Young, the global professional services firm referred to as EY. EY was one of the first large multinational organizations to integrate the concept of purpose into their culture, and they did it during Dot's tenure. I met Dot when she was a coach in my emotional intelligence coaching program. She has served as a valuable mentor for many of us studying emotional intelligence and advancing our skills as coaches. Here, Dot and I talk about purpose, well-being, and the role of organizations in helping us make and find more meaning. For more about Dot, see her full bio in the show notes of this episode. So let's start with uh, discussing your time at Ernst & Young. Um, so just to clarify, how many years were you with the firm and at what point in your career did you become a partner? Yeah, I was with EY for 22 years. And prior to that, I was with Arthur Anderson for eight years. Um, so out of those 22 years, I was a partner for 15. You were a partner when the firm began to emphasize two things. One is purpose and one is coaching. What was that cultural change or cultural shift? And what was it like to be a partner at Ernst & Young during yeah. that time? Um, it really was uh, transformational. The firm transformed. And this was uh, early in my career as a partner. So I became a partner in 2000. So all of this was happening in the uh, very late 90s. I think there was a, a start to the conversation, but it really started to happen in earnest um, in the early 2000s. And my recollection is that the coaching culture was first. It was a deliberate, conscious decision. We want to have a coaching culture. And so it was a culture change initiative um, that was uh, done methodically. Um, I suspect, and while I wasn't a partner when all of it was being decided, I suspect the reason um, that it happened was uh, a little bit of what I experienced as a, a, a high performer at Ernst & Young. In that organization, um, performance was the name of the game, right? It's a for-profit business. And not only just for ourselves, but we were constantly trying to help our clients increase their profit. And um, high-performing, high-achieving, kind of high-striving personalities uh, were doing really well at the firm. And when you go at that pace uh, without a larger purpose in mind and just for the end goal of um, you know, helping your clients, certainly, but increasing profit, you burn out you know, and, and you lose, you kind of, you can lose yourself in it. It becomes a little bit of a rush. There's an adrenaline, um, a little bit of an addictive feeling to high performing and achieving, achieving, achieving. And so um, I suspect that they started to notice burnout, um, especially in the leadership levels. I know that in the colleagues that I worked with and in myself, 
um, that adrenaline rush has a, a cost. It's a little bit like drinking too much coffee. And after a week of that, you're exhausted. Um, so the coaching culture change um, was to help people connect to why am I doing what I what I'm doing? Um, it was to help us be more sustainable, um, sustainable people, sustainable producers, sustainable um, client servers, have better relationships on our teams, better relationships with our clients. Coaching, as you know, Liz, it's a different kind of relationship. Um, but uh, it was transformational to watch that. It took several years, you know, something this large doesn't happen over the course of, of a few months or even one or two years. It was a, a several year rollout. And it was part of a larger initiative to um, develop our people more thoughtfully. And we used the, the somewhat well-known um, learning and development model that only 10% of, of how we learn and grow happens in the classroom. 70% of it comes from what we do out in the day-to-day -day world with other people. And that 20%, we called it coaching. It's the conversations that you have with somebody um, who cares about you and who is skilled in eliciting insights from you about what you're learning. And um, what we just deeply ingrained into our DNA is if we're faithful to that model, we will learn more quickly, we will grow more meaningfully, and our relationships will be better just acknowledging that coaching was still fairly new compared to how much a part of the sort of corporate lexicon it is now. Yes. And so I'm wondering as you were rolling this out or uh, over the course of these three years, how was this cultural shift? Um, how did people respond? Well, really well. Um, we would, you know, like any good organization does when it wants to know how are people feeling about this survey, 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 survey. It takes a conscious effort to begin to speak in a different language, especially people who are uh, really good at advising and consulting. To become a coach is a different thing. And so performance conversations became more asking about what experience are you having? What do you want in your life? How does that relate to what you're doing at EY? How did that relate to your performance this year? What did you think about your performance this year? Um, much more give and take. And the response in those surveys was, wow, that's a lot better. I actually feel like somebody is interested in me and interested in my experience at the firm. Did the focus on purpose or even the language around purpose emerge distinctly from creating that coaching culture? My experience as an individual leader at EY was that it most certainly did. So when the conversation started about, hey, we want to be a purpose-driven organization, we had been in the coaching mode for a few years. So it was a natural progression. Um, what it was, it felt like for me um, as an individual leader, an acknowledgement of uh, what life is really about anyway. So it removed that separation between work and the rest of life and acknowledged that what we really are, are human beings endeavoring together toward a common cause. Let's behave like human beings. Let's acknowledge our humanity. Let's acknowledge that we're motivated by deeper things than just meeting our performance goals. Um, 
Yeah. So it was very, for me, it was a, it was profound and it did emanate from, from the coaching. So what had happened in our culture was, again, there was just this acknowledgement that we're not AI, we're not artificial intelligence, right? We're human beings and it's, we need strong relationships at work. Um, We need to be, we need to be feeling as if our leadership cares about us and the experience that we're having. Was EY measuring burnout rates before instituting a coaching culture and and after and what was the difference there? Yeah, yeah, they they definitely were measuring burnout. I would see statistics every now and again and at leadership team meetings, they would present us with that info. You know how when you're doing large organizational change to get a big ship to change direction, you look at these tiny meaningful nugget questions. And one of those that we focused on is we have got to be talking with our people about what they want from their careers. We can't just be talking about um, what they did this year for the firm, um, you know, and how their performance was. And so that question was what we focused on. Has somebody asked you about your long-term career aspirations in the last X months? And, And the answer to that skyrocketed. What does it take to create a successful purpose-driven culture? In any cultural change initiative, um, there may be a grassroots need that kind of bubbles up, but nothing really happens until the leader gets on board. Um, Our CEO was super vocal, super vocal, super authentic, super transparent, super vulnerable about all of these massive cultural changes um, uh, that I would call heartful, right? Uh, Moving to a heartful culture in many different ways. Um, So what has to happen is it has to be the CEO speaking it and it has to be authentic because people are very good at reading other people. And uh, you know, we can tell when it's not real. We can tell when it's on the pamphlet and it's not you know, in the, in the boardroom or in the conference room or out in the field where we're working. Um, so leadership messaging first and foremost, and then it has to be frequent. It has to be frequently discussed when we're doing, um, talking about our business agenda. There has to be an element of that discussion that includes how does this align with our purpose? You know, um, when we're making major decisions about people's careers, how well are they living our purpose? Um, So it has to pervade everything. And for that to happen, the leaders have to expect it to happen. I have so much respect uh, for my firm um, because they do put their money where their mouth is and where their heart is. Hey, folks, this is what we're talking about. This is the behavior we want. These are the emphases that we want and how we're operating in the world that we share together. Um, As soon as we felt comfortable that there was no mystery anymore about what that was, the compensation structure would shift um, to make it accountable. And that's when you would see that people would be removed, you know, from leadership positions if they weren't exhibiting what the firm was striving to move itself forward to. Is there a story that you can tell about um, coaching a leader through a purpose or well-being crisis? There is a tendency in my coaching practice when people Uh, hear the word purpose. And it's always a question that I ask early on in the relationship, you know, uh, what's your philosophy uh, in life about the role that purpose plays for you? Um, Some people can very quickly say, oh, I've always known that I have a singular purpose in life and it's this. Other people um, automatically say, 
I don't know. I feel like purpose is so grandiose a thing. Um, I'm not somebody who's going to go out and uh, change the world. I'm not, I'm not starting a large not-for-profit. I'm not developing a, a grandiose new pharmaceutical solution to a pandemic. That's not me. Um, I don't think I have a purpose. And so um, to me, that is a bit of a crisis, right? Because if you don't get out of bed in the morning, um, if you can't get in touch with why you're here, it's hard to move yourself forward. Um, so the crisis I would see uh, that I tend to see is people give purpose, a capital P all the time um, or frequently, and they go, I'm not worthy of purpose with a capital P when really it's, it's little P purpose. You know, it's purpose in your day-to-day -day life. It's purpose in everyday interactions. Um, it's purposes like be kind, purposes like do no harm, purposes like encourage. Um, and then some people do have larger purposes, develop a drug that's going to stop the pandemic, right? Um, but I have to say, and I, I, from my own personal experience, and maybe you can, you can comment on this as well. When you live a purpose in an individual interaction, if that purpose is be kind, encourage that person, acknowledge that they're there, look them in the eye when you're talking. When you live that, the sense of joy that you get is deeper and more profound. Um, it's the one that brings tears to your eyes. I mean, I'm sure it would be joyful to develop the vaccine for the pandemic. I'm certain that they are joy-filled about that. <laughs> but it's those small day-to-day -day ones that you can do consistently um, over the course of the week that pull you forward, that really resonate with your soul. It's a lovely distinction between big P and little p purpose uh, because it acknowledges that so much of what we do in our day-to-day -day lives, just ordinary interactions, uh, have meaning. And we can have the implicit, maybe even unconscious intention to help that person to have a positive impact in some way. And that's very meaningful, uh, certainly not a capital P purpose necessarily, uh, and but it is definitely purpose. And the capital P purpose um, is, is nice, but I'm not sure that we need to capture it. I'm not sure. I, and for one thing, I think it may change as we go through life. It may change uh, in different domains of our life, at work, at at church or synagogue or, uh, you know, with our family, with our friends, we can have different capital P purpose uh, in different contexts. There's an element here of trusting in humans and humanity. Uh, when you connect somebody to what makes their own heart sing, what arises is this explosion of excitement and uh, hope and energy uh, towards that, that vision, whatever it might be. Uh, when you're connected to your heart, there's a relationship even to the exhaustion that comes out of that. 
that doesn't feel as depleting as uh, exhaustion that comes out of doing something that you're totally disconnected from and, and don't care about. Anuman, that reminds me of a quote that uh, Viktor Frankl cited in his book about meaning and purpose in life. It comes from Nietzsche. He said, the person who has a why to live can endure almost any how. It just ta- exactly. it just speaks to what you're saying. Yeah. There's what's known technically as motivational learning where uh, a coach or a counselor would ask you question after question to get at what really motivates you? What is it you really want? What is it that you're going after in life? Uh, and also you can have a, a mentor, someone who you, you see as a model and implicit in that is their sense of purpose. Uh, and maybe it resonates with your sense of purpose. Um, but I think going through an investigation with someone else, a coach who really wants to help you, uh, is one very effective, powerful way to get closer to what is in your heart, what really matters to you. I'd love to hear what a personal journey of finding purpose looks like. In Act 3, first-person plural producer and correspondent Gabby Acosta reports. One of the things that Dot Prue shared in Act 2 was that people often struggle to find their purpose because they think it has to be grandiose or life-altering in order to be meaningful. But is having a big P purpose enough? Do we also need a little p purpose to find joy in our lives? Here, I talked to Petra, an executive at a pharmaceutical company whose team develops immunotherapy for cancer patients. Petra has been working with executive coach Kelly Jaswal to expand her relationship to purpose beyond saving lives and into her personal life. Listen as Kali and Petra discuss Petra's evolution through her coaching journey. So my name is um, <clears throat> Petra Rietschel and um, I'm German by upbringing, moved to the United States 20 years ago. I'm a medical oncologist. I practiced um, for many years and now I'm part of the biotech world where I develop immunotherapy for cancer patients. And I'm Kali Jaswal, and I'm an executive coach and founder of Ignition Coaching. So I do executive coaching for um, Petra's organization, and and I was asked to work with Petra. And very excited about the opportunity because I'd heard that she was an amazing, um, phenomenal scientist, and there were some fine-tuning skills just around some of the areas that she'd like to focus on. Yeah, so at the beginning, um, I had delivered everything what I could deliver at outstanding performance, reached all the goals, and I was told I needed to soften around the edges a little bit if I wanted to reach the next level in my career. I kind of said, okay, tell me what I need to do, what I need to say, and then I will produce that for you, and after that, I can go back to who I am, and that's how I actually met Kali, and I said, Kali, I... I'm almost 50. I really don't want to change who I am. Shouldn't I go somewhere else? 
And then she said, no, no, it's not, we're not trying to change who you are. We're just trying to help you have an easier time saying what you want to say and reaching your goals and actually have people listen to you because the way you're approaching it now just makes people put their walls up and, and, and they're not no longer listening. Kali was starting to work with me on, on self-love and paying attention to your needs, take time off, relax, take a walk. She said, if these meetings aggravate you, these particular meetings, put your headphones in, take a walk. Just be kind to yourself because when you're kind to yourself, you're then able to be kind to others, right? You can't give love if you don't love yourself. So that, that was an important change that I had to make because in these pandemic times, I had to give so much to my children, my family, my job, and everybody came first until I had nothing left to give. And I observed that as well. I think what was um, one of the shift moments that I sort of remember us talking about was just even the gratitude piece, right? Just being grateful for what we do have and less focused on sort of the things which are not working or the people that are really annoying us. How can we, just given everything that we're going through, just start to take a moment of pause and focusing on what's working and getting less worked up and sort of where was our mindset effectively? Loved it when you were coming to the sessions and noticing those little um, small changes which were having a bigger impact. And I'd love to just share kind of how some of those um, those tools or tactics that you were using, how that helped you both in your personal and professional life. I had I have a journal where I write down moments that I think I should share with Kali, but I do visualize Kali and how she would respond when I'm in a stressful situation. So in the professional life, I got to put together the most amazing team in this year. And um, the sense of purpose that we all had to help and to, to bring this immunotherapy to cancer patients that had only cytotoxics that were pushing them to the brink of death. And now you can actually enable and empower their own bodies to fight the cancer. That was that was a purpose that I could identify with. I remember we did the Game Changer Index report to help identify your leadership style, right? And, and helping you to clarify the decision as to whether to stay or to go. Just curious how that report in itself helped you to define who you are and sort of bringing it back to your purpose and what it means for you to show up the way you want to show up. Yes. So I had been told that I wasn't a great strategist and too pragmatic. And so I was concerned about that. And I figured maybe I have to leave um, to learn strategy. And when we did this um, test, I scored the highest on strategy, way higher than expected. And um, we discovered that what people think a strategy is different for every person, right? So a strategist in this assessment was somebody who took good ideas and made them work, put them into reality, right? So that gave me the confidence that I am who I wanna be and this is what patients need. They don't just need, we have plenty of game changers in this company that have ideas that will never go into reality, right? Mm -hmm. So they need somebody like me, like with this program that we pulled through last year that can make things happen and that has a kind of um, realistic approach to things. And I felt like I could make my contribution in that company for that. You're both really speaking to something that Dot Prue, who is our previous guest, also talked about people feeling overwhelmed with the thought of purpose. It has to be this grandiose idea that's going to change the absolute world. 
but people feel a little bit unworthy of that. And I'm wondering, Petra, if you could actually speak to that in your experience. Do you feel like you have clarity on either a big P or a, a little P or both in your life after your coaching engagement? In my career as an oncologist, it's, it's, it's easy to find purpose in helping these people, none of which lives longer than six months after they meet you. Uh, going to um, biotech, I, that was more difficult, though Kali helped me identify that the purpose was still there, right, on a bigger scale. And, and, and that I, you know, I take tremendous um, proud out of, you know, being able to, to advance these immunotherapies. But the small purpose is kind of that if you are considerate of people around you, you're kind, um, and, and you let things go, somebody bullying you in a line at the grocery store, so not to attack them because you can, <clears throat> but you just try to be the bigger person and, and be kind, that that affects everybody around you. And it does at work and it does in your, in your personal life. And um, it, it's just the impact of that is amazing. And I'm trying to teach my children that, right? It's easy to criticize. It's easy to come up with what you don't have and what other people have. It is so hard to just be kind and good all day long, regardless of you know, if somebody, saw, you know, is really nasty to you to turn around and be kind. And I've used that at work. And instead of fighting back, I would just sit and pause. And people feel horrible about being mean to you. While if you fight back, it escalates into this big argument and everybody comes out of that feeling awful and nothing gets solved. Can you think of a specific um, example in your life about how you've applied the little P purpose since you began this experience? Yeah, um, I, I was waiting in line at an ice cream store with my kid and my child was very focused on the ice cream. And then somebody, an, an elderly lady pushed herself in front of me and cut in line. And now, so there's lots of things I can say about that. Like, you're retired, you should have a lot of time. You could wait in line like everybody else. You don't use a crutch. So, so yeah, so that would have, would have been easy to be nasty about that, right? And, but I saw my daughter looking at me and, and then to just say, you know, I'm sure she has a good reason for being in a rush. Maybe somebody's waiting for her. This must be urgent enough for her to actually cut in line and, and to let it go, right? And then the lady turned around and said, thank you. And um, I thought that was a valuable lesson for my daughter. And it also made all of us feel better, including the lady that cut the line. And um, as a German, I feel very strong about lines. And I would have felt uh, obliged to point out the value of the line before, but it's, it's not worth it. You'd, and Kali always says that you don't have to fight all the battles, right? It just wears you out and makes you negative and beaten up at the end of the day. Pick your battles, right, is what yeah, we always say. So for me, the big P is really the work we do is about inspiring others to live more meaningful lives and ultimately for people to find greater fulfillment in both their personal and professional lives so that we can, right, we can find greater kindness and connection in the world we're living. So that's my bigger P, and it's about helping individuals, organizations, teams to do that individually and collectively. I feel if we can do that, it can have a huge trickle down impact. And, um, and as we're hearing from Petra, just in terms of the impact that can have not just on one individual, but people around us. 
the little p for me as well is similar to Petra in the sense of what impact can this have on me in my life, in my family, my, my husband, two kids and our dog is like, how can we continuously support one another to have greater um, love, compassion, care, especially in this last year, 2020, where I feel we're constantly thrown um, with so many different challenges is how am I showing up as a mother, as a sister, as a daughter, as a um, wife? Um, how am I showing up and being my best self and applying these tools and practices to the ones that care, uh, matter to me the most? So that's constant, it's work in progress. And I feel um, the more that I can work on myself, obviously, the more I can help others as well. I wonder if you could give an example about how you've seen purpose be not just in your own life at work, but how it's trickled down into the work with your team in specific ways. So I guess it's the, the fact that I have such a tight knit team and almost all of them, um, 80% of my team members are young women with young children. So going through this together and 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 so the, the shared purpose and also the shared love and understanding to tell each other it's okay your child's academic career will not be destroyed forever because they're not doing well on zoom in kindergarten right to 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 put this in perspective and and to to feel like we're doing this big thing in a company that's providing uh, help in covid as well and, and, and we're getting you know, this done, we need to give ourselves credit and feel good about that. And then we need to be kind to our family, right? They do not have to bring home A's or, or the apartment doesn't have to be you know, sparkling clean. And so, so I think that's, that's how I felt it, it trickled down, that, that, that the fact that the bigger purpose is more important than all these little things we tend to torture ourselves with and that you can pass that on by, you know, not making people work nine to five, but accommodate their families um, when somebody is sick to cover for them, um, to have each other's back. Nobody ever, you know, takes things out on the other member. We all protect each other. That is how I felt it was trickling down. I really felt that Kali had, had changed my life. And I didn't have to change. I was so torn initially with this. You know, I've heard this all my life. You're great at what you do, but your personality sucks. And I was like, what do I do with that now with 50? And it turned out to be such a small fix. I love that. And there are so many people that are struggling with that, right? Struggling to work out what is their purpose and what should we be doing? And, and there is no clear pathway. And I feel it's okay. And, and I love, there was a quote from Steve Jobs. He used to talk about like, look at your past and think about the connections that have been made in the past. And okay, how are you going to get to your, uh, move forward in terms of the direction that you're making? And I feel sometimes the, the past connections don't always connect. Um, however, if we can start to just take that moment to really think about what drives us, what impact do we want to make um, in the world or even sort of ourselves, that can help to identify our future. And it's never too late. I feel it's never too late to change. Um, as a coach, I, I love to be able to help people make those career shifts and really do something that's going to be more meaningful in their lives. So I always just share with everyone, whatever you're doing, it will make sense at some point. And it's okay, just kind of follow your gut. We're always constantly like, what do we do? Um, 
and it's not obvious but I think even if it's a step in the right direction doing a little bit and as you're doing Petra that's giving you that fulfillment that will ultimately guide you and sort of a one day working towards clarifying what that is yes and I feel like I have this team and if I can help them find what they're interested they are and then I assign them to projects that are related to that or introduce them to the right people that are active in that area, that gives me incredible an incredible sense of purpose. Yeah. It's a lovely uh, report from the oncologist about finding purpose. There's obvious purpose and mission to being in medicine and being an oncologist and then going into biotech to help find a medicine or treatment that will help people in that. But if the rest of your life is a blank when it comes to purpose or meaning, that's then it feels a little hollow. And I love that she saw that moment in the ice cream store as a chance to demonstrate uh, some meaning and actually it was a teachable moment for a daughter that instead of being angry and making assumptions about the woman uh, she could give her some space and be patient and say maybe she has a good reason I love that because it's taking the perspective of the other it's empathizing uh, and then the woman says thank you wow that really brought it home to her and to her daughter that people may have the reasons for doing things and if you give them space you may find out what that is and it's a it's an act of kindness and kindness in itself is a purpose small p purpose and for me that just talks so much about what we don't know in the world about what's happening for everybody else i, I don't know if it's a purpose but it's just a huge huge skill to in those moments when we have emotional flare-ups to be able to recognize the blind spots that we have and the, the mm. that are informing that uh, emotion and to not just recognize them, but uh, I think acting on blind spots in that way means uh, actively, um, uh, like, I don't know if it's raining in, but mitigating at least, or, or actively balancing out the emotional reaction with this understanding that you don't know what's going on. And this person might be uh, in, in trouble or, or, you know, in a rush or whatever it is, or, uh, you know, some more personal affront, you still don't know what's been happening for that person. And it's just a, so important to remember always yeah, Hanuman, it reminds me, it's kind of a profound uh, empathy, being able to assume the better about someone or maybe the best about someone and then think from their point of view what might be going on. It's, it's so different than just making a snap assumption and acting from your assumption, which, I, you know, frankly, that's my probably default in situations like that. I wish I could be more like the lady in the ice cream store. Right. I mean, that's what happens for all of us. It's how we're wired, right? We, we have, we, you wrote a book about this. <laughs> we, when, <laughs> when we get really uh, emotional, these things take over in our minds and it's so hard to just remain human. Petra did such an amazing job somehow managing to stay human amidst those difficult emotions. 
And you've just reminded me that you write about what you need to learn. <laughs> it seems to me that each one of these stories that we've heard in today's podcast circles back to the importance of self-awareness and emotional intelligence, tuning into what matters to you, uh, demands self-awareness, but I think also one of the fruits of self-awareness is a better sense of what your true north actually might be. Yeah, that's uh, that's been my experience, but rather on the other side of that, where uh, I, I there's a palpable lack of self awareness, and and from that has arisen uh, a lack of purpose. But but I think it's I guess what stood out for me about this episode are these various ways that we have purpose in our life, and and that it's really important. Uh, it, I can tell that it will be important for me to reflect on purpose uh, at a number of different levels, because I have a, a real feeling in my life that I want to uh, leave the world a better place. I, I want to create the conditions for less human suffering. But then I also, I see that one of the ways that I can do that is to uh, have as healthy an immediate world as possible. And so really uh, gathering my attention and actions and regarding my immediate surroundings with an eye to the more global uh, impact of that. I, I believe in ripples, I suppose. I believe in ripples of uh, butterfly effect. When we are well, the world that we are a part of becomes more well. Oh, I like that because, you know, it expands the concept of well-being from personal to collective to global even. I love that. Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, EI and Beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. Special thanks to Sujata, whose voice you heard at the top of the show, and to today's guests, Richard Davidson, Dot Prue, Petra Richo, and Kali Jaswal. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Solomon and me, Gabriela Acosta. Episode art and production support by Bryant Johnson. Music in this episode includes theme music by Amber Ojeda, New Moon by Irvin Berlin, and Dream by John Cage. Until next time, be well. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.